Well, uh, yeah, um, welcome again. Just to give you a brief background on, on where I've come from, who I am, like I said before, I grew up in the Midwest, was in, was in North, southeast, uh, southwest Ohio near Dayton until I was eight, then I moved up to Ashtabula County when I was, uh, when I was eight, was there until I was 18. Um, came to Moody and immediately felt kind of like a growing affection for Chicago. Um, I really enjoyed my time here, learned a lot, grew a lot, suffered, um, went through cynical times and frustrating times where I was completely fed up um, and went, but also had exhilarating times and it was very transformative. It was very good for me um, and it was the right fit for where I was at at that point in my life. I, after graduating, moved up to Rogers Park, where I lived for a little over a year. My, my friend, who's um, the worship pastor now at Moody Church, we, uh, we found an apartment at, um, in Rogers Park and were there until he got married. And then I moved to Lincoln Park and moved in with some friends at DePaul University. And um, during that time, I was, um, I was coordinating marriage conferences for Gary Chapman. So it was kind of my first job out of college. And, um, and, and I was also dating uh, my, my wife, Laura, um, and um, she, um, uh, she, came, she went here as well. We knew each other as friends for a couple of years. We were kind of acquaintances, would pass each other in the halls. And then after, um, after I graduated, um, we reconnected and um, at a couple of parties that our mutual friends threw. Um, and, um, and then uh, we began dating, and then uh, we were eventually married. Um, I was at Wheaton Grad School from 2003 to 2005 and studied biblical exegesis there. That's when Laura and I started to attend an Anglican church together. We were having this fight about where we would go um, because I had, I had gone from megachurch burnout to, uh, to Covenant Presbyterian um, where I really was blessed by so much there. Um, Laura was at an evangelical church in the suburbs that she had grown up in and we were kind of having a disagreement about what kind of church was the right fit for us. And so we started looking around. We, we went to Church of the Resurrection in Wheaton, uh, uh, and uh, we're, all of our categories were blown away. We didn't exactly know what happened <laughs> at the end of the service. We walked out and we were like, what happened in there? But, um, but it, was, um, it was transformative from the very beginning. And we began, the formation process began from the very beginning. We went back, we went, we were the last, it was the last Sunday before Lent, so it was the last Sunday of Epiphany when we first visited, and the next week we went, it was, we were fully, full on in Lent, and so it was just a 180, and, um, and it took us by surprise, but it was a joyful surprise. So, for the next five years, uh, I was, yeah, for the next five years, we, that was our home church, and that's really where I became an Anglican. Um, it was in the context of worship that I began to learn. It was in the context of worship that I was shaped and um, the learning was important, the relationships were important, but it was the full-on formation of worshiping and, and, and serving in an Anglican context that I, that's where I became an Anglican. Um, so uh, in those five years, the first two were out in Wheaton, the last three were here, just a few yards away, <laughs> as, the, as the RS for Dreyer in Colby 3 through 9. So yeah, we're, I, I was here as an Anglican <laughs> working closely with um, with, uh, with residents' life to shape leaders and ra raise up student leaders and shape the culture of Moody's campus to be one where students could flourish and 
integrate their faith and learning. It was my first ministry job, and I loved it. And I was headed for PhD route, uh, teaching and research. Um, uh, so got into one school out of all the ones I applied to. It was in D.C. It was at the Catholic University of America to study New Testament. And uh, we, um, we also knew that there was a vibrant urban Anglican church on Capitol Hill that we were interested in being a part of. We had a real clear sense we were supposed to move to D.C., not really knowing what would work out. So we packed up our things in dryer. We, uh, we drove our Penske truck out there on Wells Street, not knowing what would greet us in the East Coast. It was a real scary time. Laura, I wouldn't say scary, but it was definitely a topsy-turvy time. I was leaving the security of this job, which, as you know, comes with housing, and it's a really wonderful, wonderful like role to have. Um, I loved all three years. Um, moving to D.C., not really knowing what would greet us. Laura, a week before, had given birth to our second child. So we had a two-year-old and an infant, and going to a land we did not know, with no job, with no financial plan, um, uh, but with a sense that the Lord was calling us on. And it was, a, it was hard to do that. But um, it, uh, on the other end, we met the Lord. And that, you know, I feel like the Lord creates and meets people in chaotic situations. And he indeed did that for us. Um, I uh, discovered that financially speaking, things were not going to work for me to do my PhD at Catholic University, and so I um, worked for a year at a policy research center um, doing um, administrative work and some research work. Uh, but it was the best thing in the world. I went from being an RS at Moody to interacting with people who had no interest in church um, and serving them and doing, doing, doing their bidding um, and interacting with them about their ideas. And... Um, what really helped, that was really helpful for me because I went from being a pastor to, um, uh, to students that I really loved and cared about to learning how to be a pastor for people who are outside of the church um, and having conversations about um, eternal matters with them, conversations about their personhood, their soul. Um, and it was in that context that I realized um, I'm called to be a pastor. I'm not called to be on the outside of the battle. I'm called to be in the battle. Some people are called to be scholars and researchers, and that's a good thing, and, and it's, that's blessed by God. I just realized that's not for me. That's not what I'm supposed to do. That's not my calling. So um, after that year, uh, I came on staff with our church, church, also called Church of the Resurrection, not the same one as in Wheaton. This one is um, in D.C.'s uh, Eastern Market neighborhood of Capitol Hill, and serving a lot of young, ambitious, uh, very goal-oriented people who worked for Congress, worked for the government, worked for nonprofits, and, um, and I learned how to be a pastor there, and um, was ordained, and saw a different expression of Anglicanism than the one I had grown up in, in Wheaton, or the one I had been formed in, in Wheaton. So, um, uh, what I what I did was a three-year curacy. It's like a medical residency where you are employed full-time, doing full-time work, but overseen by uh, people who have already been through that. So there were three different church planters, um, in, in addition to some other pastors that were watching me work, watching me preach, lead, um, uh, do mission, serve, and they would give feedback, oversight, and shaping and coaching. It was a really wonderful time. And I grew a ton. 
um, just in my soul, but also as a pastor. And at the end of that time, the Lord orchestrated a providential series of events to actually get us back to Chicago. So we felt called away very clearly by God in 2008, and then in 2012, the call was just as clear to come back. And uh, this time, to to see a new church planted in, in the heart of Chicago. So um, uh, along along that journey, I've I've met many of you, and and all of you are gifts to the church, and all of you are gifts to me, gifts from Jesus um, to Emmanuel and to me, and I'm very grateful for you. Um, so uh, we we realized that we launched our church in October after. Um, after a, a, a season of, of reaching out, a se- season of mission, a season, a season of planting seeds, we realized it was time to have weekly services in Uptown. And we launched October 6th. Um, and I met many of you after that because one of, one of, our, um, uh, one of our partners in ministry um, who, who uh, has, has been very kind to us, Marcus Johnson, who I haven't, I don't know if I met him, we were fellow students at Moody, but I haven't talked to him, if, I, if we've ever talked, I haven't, it's been over a decade. Um, and so it's, he's one example of, um, uh, of God serving us and loving us in this planting journey, in this faith journey, because um, he sent, he and Dr. Clark, I know, maybe even Dr. Litvin sent many of you our way. Um, after five months of meeting, we knew it was time, after four months of meeting, we knew that pretty soon it would be time to launch small groups and time for Lent, so we all could be formed together. And this is one of the small groups we discerned. You know, there's an interest at Moody. Um, let's do evening prayer on Moody's campus and just talk about Anglicanism a little bit. Um, give a time to interact and even a time to receive prayer as well as to engage evening prayer. So that's really the genesis of this, uh, of this group. So thank you, Neely, so much for, for um, coordinating so much uh, uh, involved in this group. And um, so I'm really glad to be with you all. Tonight I want to talk about... Um, uh, broad, broad strokes, what is Anglicanism? And as, as I understand it, Anglicanism is, is simply a chalice from which you can drink deeply from the person of Jesus. Anglicanism is a, is a chalice from which you can drink deeply from the presence of Jesus. Uh, you can drink deeply from the healing of Jesus, from the story of Jesus, from the pattern of Jesus. Um, so Anglicanism is not itself the object of worship. Anglicanism is not itself the, um, the source of all life. Um, Anglicanism is a delivery system. I think it's a beautiful delivery system. I think it's, a, um, it's one that we, we should see planted all over the world. Um, but uh, when it becomes about the chalice, something's wrong. It's what's in the chalice that is the object of nourishment and focus. Um, when it becomes about you only, something's wrong. When it just becomes about you and, and your needs, something's wrong. It's about the source of life, the one who created both the chalice and the person drinking from the chalice, which is the person of Jesus. Anglicanism puts the, puts the person of Jesus on display in a way that is deeply profound, uh, in a way that shapes us as humans. Um, so a chalice will, will not itself nourish you, but um, a beautiful chalice will prepare your soul um, for what it holds. A beautiful chalice, as you, uh, as you engage it, will prepare your soul to receive what it holds. 
um, we are um, not, so we are called, when we, when we come to an Anglican service, we are coming to taste and see. We are not simply coming to feel. We are not simply coming to know. Because we are not primarily creatures who know. We are not primarily creatures who feel. We are primarily creatures who love. And love is liturgical. We are creatures of desire. And desire is liturgical. Um, liturgy um, is the work of the people seeking union with the beloved. That's what liturgy is. It's the work of the people seeking union with the beloved. And in Anglican liturgy, it is uh, the people of God are carrying out an ordered pattern to seek union with the one that they desire and the one that they love. And that will shape us. That will profoundly shape us in a way that learning never could, in a way that feeling never could. It's comprehensive. Um, let's talk about liturgy of the flagpole. Does, is flagpoling still a thing here at Moody? <laughs> Yeah. I know that as you grow older, you regard it with some disdain. Am I wrong? I think it's funny. Yeah, it is funny. It is funny. It's, let's, talk about, let's talk about what is the beginning of the liturgy of the flagpole? The kidnapping. The kidnapping. But what comes before the pit kidnapping, Caleb? The planning. The planning. Or the engagement. Yes, yes. So... Um, Let's start with the planning. What happens in the planning stages of the flagpole? Talk about how you're going to get them to, in order to, in order to you know, what story you're coming up with. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, you have to plan when, when and where will it happen. Mm -hmm. How will we tackle him? What else is going on? Coordinating with the fiancé so that she'll be around. Yes, yes. You're conspiring together. Mm -hmm. <laughs> And is this a boring thing? Depends how many you've done that semester. <laughs> right, right, that's true. Good point, good point. All right, what comes next? What's next in the liturgy of the flagpole? After the planning. Execution. Yes. And, yes, someone, someone take me through the drama of the execution. Yes, yes, yes. I feel like boys are starting to fight a little more. When I was a freshman, they would just go willingly after they were handed hmm. the but now they try and get away at times. Yes. But eventually, when it's hmm. ten against one, hmm. it's not much you can do. So they're you, dragged to the plaza. Yes. Duct taped to the light pole. Hmm. And then, and then the charges are brought. Yeah. <laughs> so, someone tell me about the charges. What charges are brought? It's uh, aban like abandonment of the brotherhood. Mm. Yeah, betrayal. Betrayal, yeah. Secret notes are read. Secret notes are read. Usually forged. Yes. Yeah. yeah, right, right, right. Forged notes are read. And then what happens? I think he's found guilty. Yes. Never innocent. <laughs> right, right, right. And and once, once, once the man is found guilty by the brotherhood, what happens next? Mm -hmm. Yes. Where does she come from, though? I don't know. The crowd. The crowd. Yes, yes. The punishment of the shaving cream. 
Yes, yes, okay. I, th- I, I remember, and maybe this is just my distortion, but I remember the fiancé coming from around that sharp corner where D.L. Moody knelt. You know what I mean? And she kind of comes around, she appears, prefiguring when she will be a bride. I don't know. This is my, this is my foggy old man. Um, so, yes, and then, and then what, what's like the epic moment in the flag pulling? For a half a second, the kissing rule is suspended. Yes, yes, yes. More than half a second. Yeah, some people take some liberty there. Yes, yes, yes. And then what happens? Clapping and excitement. Release from bondage. Is there is shaving cream no longer a part? No, it still is. Yeah. Okay. That, that takes place as soon as they duct tape them on the. Uh, the okay, okay, okay. Yeah. But don't they duck? Don't they? Don't they shaving cream the girl as well? She yeah. just gets it on her from being. Oh right. Okay. Contact. Okay. Okay. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And now you have to sign something, by the way, when you're about to be like. Oh really? Okay. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> yes. Mm. And then once, and then once the kiss has happened, and everyone sh- has got shaving cream, then what happens? We come down and meet Jesus' friends. Yes. <laughs> yes. Man. It's amazing. It's still the same thing. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about what um, what love is being engaged in the liturgy of the flagpole. Well, for one, the uh, the fiance has to go through the embarrassment of, I mean, depending on the personality, whether or not it is embarrassing for them, but mm. like of kind of in the midst of, like, that mob of, like, going up and, like, claiming the person is there. Yes, yes. Even especially, like, kissing in front of other people. Yes. So there is, like, an element of, like, uncomfortable... Yes. I don't know. It it can be a little, like, awkward, I guess. Yes, yes. Awkwardness is built into the liturgy, is it not? Yeah. (laughs) It wouldn't be moody if it wasn't. Um, Awkwardness is built into... And dramatized, even. Um, But but, uh, what relationships are being celebrated... The, I think it's a way that Moody celebrates the brotherhood, the men celebrating together. Yes. Being excited for yes. their friend, being yes. excited for their engagement and their wedding. And I mean, yeah, there's a sport to it, I'm sure. But yes. it's also, if they didn't care about him, yes. then he wouldn't, no one would think to do it for him. Yes. It's, and there's something communal for the whole school. Yes. 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 You would join in the charge of treachery, wouldn't you? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. So there's there's there really is an expression of love from the community for this guy, his his floor mates, his friends. They're telling him even as they tackle him and even as he fights back, they're expressing their love for one another, aren't they? Mm-hmm. They're they're carrying out their love for one another. What other what other relationship is being celebrated? I mean, the couple's relationship for sure. Yes, absolutely. In fact, it's proclaimed. Mm-hmm. It's proclaimed, and and maybe even like at that moment, they're not exactly feeling <laughs> the love. They're just feeling whatever it is, you know, depending on their background. But nevertheless, their love is being displayed, mm-hmm. and being celebrated. Mm-hmm. And 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 there is even like you mentioned. 
uh, Melanie, there is a, in some ways, the love of the student for the school, the love of the community for its traditions, that's being put on display. There is a relationship there, and that relationship is being engaged in a profound way. It's silly, yes. It's, it's fun, yes. But there's something very deep and meaningful. Otherwise, no one would do it. And that's what liturgy is. Liturgy is love. Liturgy is the work of the people. It really is the work of the people seeking to be united with the beloved. Let's talk about, you know, the liturgy of the football game. Is there anyone here from a college town? Or anyone here from a... Okay. Tell us. What is it like on game day? The campus is full of traffic. And yes. if you don't watch football games, you there. Yes, 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 yes. What would... Yeah. What, tell me, if I was... If I came to visit and... I was wrapped up and someone said, hey, I'm going to take you to a football game and you're going to have the full experience. What would the full experience be? And, and anyone feel free to jump in. Starting out early in the morning, probably. Mm. If you want the full experience. Yes. You go and stake out a tailgating spot. Yes. And set up a tent and coolers mm. and grills. Or maybe an RV if mm. you're really serious about it. Yes. And spend the whole day there mm. before the game. Mm-hmm. Um, and what would you do at the tailgating time? What would what would happen? Would you be reading stat- statistic books? Probably not. Probably yeah. a lot of reciting of stats. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes, yes, yes. But and what are you reciting them around? Uh, food and drinks mm. and alcohol. Yes, yes. <laughs> Yes. Uh, maybe some beanbag toss. Yes, yeah. yes. Cornhole. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yes. Mm. And then what's it like to go from tailgating into stadium? What's that? What's that? What's the what's the what's the pre-game procession for for someone who wants to participate gets the full experience of the football game? You have the gear. Yes. What kind of gear, Neely? Oh, foam fingers. Yes. Hats. Yes. Jerseys. Yes. And, I mean, yeah, face paint. Face paint, yes, yes. My dad, an air horn. Any old color, Neely? Well, no. You know, it's got to be the right color. Mm. The team that you're cheering for. Yes. That you're deeply emotionally invested in. Yes, yes. Hmm. And, you know, if it's, depending on if it's cold outside, like if you go to the Dallas Cowboy Bears game in early December and it's zero degrees, yes. you have to wear eight layers, but that doesn't stop you from wearing your jersey on top. Yes, yes. <laughs> hypothetically speaking, Hypothetically speaking. <laughs> possibly hypothermic. Yes, yes. Any, any, any other, any other, anybody else want to throw in something about the liturgy of the football game? Taunting the, the opposing team. Taunting the, yes. Taunting the opposing team. Absolutely. Yeah, that's part of, that's part of your work. Everything's just much more embellished. The energy is being fed. Yes. So every bad thing that happens or every good thing that happens is way more Hmm. Yes, yes. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. I had a friend who, um, who went to University of Alabama and is a, you know, big Bama fan, and uh, he played for me, like, the music. He's like, now this is the music they play when Alabama comes out. And he described the whole scene to me, the mm -hmm. roar, you know. And in Alabama, that is, like, the Iron Bowl is the thing of the year. It is the, uh, the high point in um, the Alabama liturgical calendar. Um, there is, um, it is the most intense, and it is also when the most love is expressed. Liter uh, football has a liturgy, and it really does shape you, doesn't it? You walk through it, and it makes you, in some ways, who you are. It defines it is what you love, and it defines what you love. Um, there's a liturgy of the Apple Store. Anyone ever buy an Apple product, or anyone ever participate in the liturgy of the Apple Store? Oh yeah. What do you do when you go into the Apple Store? Looks like a temple. Yes. And what is that? What 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 do the visuals of the temple do to your do to your heart and soul? Probably desire, um, I don't know, depending on what you're getting, like yes. envy, you're not getting something more. Yes. A um, little overwhelming of like all that there is to be had there. Mm. Um, the person immediately like kind of snagging, even if you know where mm. you're going. They, like, the priest approaches you. And, you. Yeah. <laughs> and yes. points you in the right direction. Yes. Yeah. And what's participation like? What's participation in this liturgy like? Expensive. <laughs> it is expensive, but but there's a cheap way of participating, correct? Go straight to the photo booth and take pictures. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Beautiful. Uh huh. Absolutely. You can play with the devices, right? Mm -hmm. You can taste the good life, even if not even if you're not necessarily ready to make the sacrifice for the good life. You can kind of taste and see, right? And even in tasting and seeing, the temple of apple begins to form you. Your desires are shaped. Your loves are evoked. Your desire immediately gets evoked whether or not you can access those desires or not. Nevertheless, they're, they're evoked, and you connect with what you love. Maybe not to the level that you want to, but you, can, you, you taste and see. You participate. You don't just learn about Apple. You participate in Apple. You don't just learn about football. You participate in football. And the... the, the uh, the, the whole experience of get, whether it's the alarm clock of getting up early or um, barbecuing the brats or tasting, you know, a sip of uh, PBR as you toss, you know, toss the, the bean bag towards the hole and see it go in and feel joy in your heart as it does, it shapes us. It shapes us because we are creatures of desire and we are creatures of love. And love is liturgical. Desire is liturgical. And when you engage in a liturgy of desire, you become who you are going to be. Because it shapes you. We are shaped by our loves. We are formed by our desires. We are shaped by our vision for the good life. And the good life is participated and put on display liturgically. Flannery O'Connor says this, The things that we hear, smell, and touch affect us long before, and I would add long after, we believe anything at all. Um, what does Anglican liturgy do? Let me read to you from Revelation 4 and 5. John was 
taken to a liturgical center. It wasn't the Apple Store. It wasn't uh, Lambeau Field. It wasn't uh, the um, the plaza. <laughs> but he was taken to a liturgical temple called Heaven, where there is a liturgy of desire being played out day and night. He says in Revelation 4, 1, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what, may, what must take place after this. So he's going, to, he's going to see what will happen. He's going to see what is happening. Um, and in heaven, those things begin to collapse together. Um, and here's the liturgy. All around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and on behind. And these things are important. This is part of the liturgy. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth like uh, an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. The liturgical pattern of heaven is celebrating and seeking union in an ordered way with the desire of the nations. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are surrounded by a liturgical array full of eyes and colors, and they participate in a pattern, and they're seeking union with God himself, and they're worshiping the Lamb. And here's one aspect of this liturgy, and whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. The 24 elders, here's another aspect to the liturgical calendar, liturgical pattern. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns, which is a liturgical pattern, before the throne, saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. When we gather on Sundays and participate um, in, in the life of the church together, we theologically understand that we are engaging the liturgy of heaven um, in response to what God has done in the world. We come together and seek union with the one who created us. Because he is the object of desire. He is, the, he is the, the source of all satisfaction, the source of all life. Um, so we're, we're coming together to worship, not s- simply to understand Christology, but to know Christ. We're seeking to know Christ. And knowing is more than understanding. It is more than just a, a set of doctrines that we fill our heads with. It's more than just the feelings that we can feel in his presence. It is union. It is, it is the deepest kind of knowing with the person of Jesus. So how do we do that? What are, the, what are the aspects? I mean, real briefly, we have seasons. We have seasons in the church calendar, and the season we're in right now is Lent, and we're over a series of weeks walking with Christ in his temptation, in his suffering. Not to be dour, not to earn our salvation, but to, be, to walk the road of the one we love. I with anyone that we're connected with on a deep level. If they're having a hard time, if they're experiencing something, we want to know what it is to experience that. 
We want to experience what they experience. That's one of the ways we have union with someone is we join in their suffering um, and thereby share in their love. So the liturgical calendar takes us through the life of Christ and through the life of the church as well. And in these seasons, uh, we, we, we come to know Jesus. We come to know Jesus as an object of desire. But not just seasons, we have weekly worship and we have daily prayer like we're engaging in tonight. All of this around the Bible. Our weekly worship is um, shaped by the Bible. It's, um, gr- uh, it, was, it was shaped very early on after Jesus' resurrection. The church put this together in its rudimentary form and we practice it um, very s- similarly to um, uh, how the early church practiced uh, this, this liturgy. It truly is ancient. Um, and, um, but it's built around the Bible. It is built around the Bible from first to last. It's physical and tactile. So there's bread and wine. And uh, there's a cross. There's a wooden cross and a wooden communion table. And there's, there's oil and there's water. Uh, and there's ashes sometimes. It's physical and it's tactile. But it's also visual and beautiful. There's art on display. Um, there is... Um, uh, th- there are uh, certain people wearing certain things. I'll, I'll wear this uh, dog collar, um, which represents that I'm I'm a bond servant of Christ. But I also wear um, a, a white alb uh, uh, on Sundays, which is meant to point not towards me, but a, but but away from me, to point towards the church, the blood of the martyrs. They were given white robes. Um, the church uh, has always been. Um, dressed in a white robe because she is the bride of Christ. Um, she is given Christ's righteousness, given Christ's cleansing. White is a symbol for what Christ gives to the church. And I wear also a, um, a, a stole, which, which is draped around my neck, and um, it symbolizes the, the, uh, uh, the um, tools of a servant, the towel that you put around your neck when you're ready to wash people's feet, which is what the Lord expects of all of his leaders. Um, it's visual and it's beautiful, and and it's it's on display everywhere, whether through banners, um, or or the the, the uh, communion table covering, um, or uh, or the candles. It changes, it just like any other thing would change seasonally. The church calendar uh, changes visually throughout the year. Um, but this is uh, from first to last, a journey of desire. It's a journey of love to, be, to have union with the one that we love and to be shaped by the one that we love. If you want to go deeper on this topic, I encourage you to, to check out James K.A. Smith. He's got a great book called Desiring the Kingdom. And he talks, about, he, he talks a, a bit about the liturgy of the mall and how cultural liturgies are shaping us all the time. Um, and that's truly where we get our education um, are, are those liturgies. Uh, and and he, he walks you through the Christian liturgy and, and talks about how it shapes us. So if you want to go deeper on this topic, I, I highly recommend uh, James K. Smith, Desiring the Kingdom. Let me talk a little bit about the next seven weeks, what, what, a preview of what's to come. This will, this will probably change to some degree, but it's a rough idea. I want to talk about Anglicanism and the church calendar and Holy Week. We'll probably talk about that next week. And we'll talk about 
what, what, what are the different elements of the church calendar, uh, the different seasons, what they mean, what Holy Week means. We have Holy Week is coming up. Uh, we'll talk about Ang- Anglicanism and, and authority. Um, where does Anglicanism get its authority? We'll talk about the Bible and how the Bible and Scripture, or sorry, the Bible and tradition um, work together to shape, shape the church. Um, we'll talk about tradition being the living faith of the dead. Um, the fourth week, I think, uh, if you guys are up for it, we could do a Monday Thursday service right here. We could do the whole service if you're interested. Um, so, um, so, so let, let me know what you think about that. Let Neely know what you think about that. And, 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 um, if, uh, if you guys are good with it and if it's okay with Moody by Moody that we do it, then we can do a full Monday Thursday service. Um, it's on a Thursday, so it's fitting. Um, and it's on Monday Thursday. April 24th, the fifth week, um, uh, we'll talk about Anglicanism and the sacraments. What is it? What, what, what are the sacraments that, that Anglicanism, and what is a sacramental life, which is a, another, an, a, another way to approach this. What does a sacramental life look like? Um, which is essentially a, the Christian way of basically saying matter matters. Matter is not God, but matter matters to God. It matters to us because God made it. Um, I think May 1st we'll have Josh Evans, who's one of Emmanuel's leaders. He's lived in Chicago for the last, um, I think, uh, 13 years, maybe 14 years, various neighborhoods. He's a medical doctor, works at Loyola, but also um, is um, uh, a a very mature spiritual leader, and um, I would love for him to come share with you. He's He's had really good formation as an Anglican was a catechist for the Chicago, um, the Chicago branch of Res years ago. They had a group that met for a while. Uh, Josh was the, the leader of that group. So I want him to share with you, um, and I, I still may be able to come to that, but um, Josh will be leading. And then I'd like to talk about Anglicanism and the Holy Spirit. What role does the Holy Spirit play in Anglican churches? And then finally, um, I want to talk at the last week about Anglicanism and feasting. So hospitality, what Anglicanism is, is, is a celebration of hospitality, and that works its way not only into our, to our worship life, but also into our, our daily life. And so if you want to know what it's like to be Anglican, get together and have a meal with somebody and feast in the name of Jesus. That's, a, you know, that's, that's one way to engage Anglicanism. We'll talk about that intersection the last week, which is May 15th. You guys going to be around May 15th? Will you be gone? Finals week? Okay. All right. So... Um, we've got a small group plan for those who can make it great if you can't make it no, no worries at all um, I know that's a stressful week but although by Thursday maybe you'll be done so who knows um, okay great any questions before we go back into our liturgy going once going twice alright let's pray the song, uh, song of Mary together